Please leave your Bibles open as we look at arguably Paul's most famous sermon. The sermon we just heard from Paul is a guide on how we are to talk about our faith to our surrounding unbelieving culture. In this moment in American Christianity, the church finds itself in a similar climate as Paul did in Athens. Much like Princeton, Athens was renowned for its academic and cutting-edge intellectual contributions. The finest minds exported their greatest ideas across the surrounding world from Athens. It was the home of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. It was renowned for its politics, for its architecture and poetry. Not only that, much like our area, there was amazing religious diversity. If you were to draw a 10-mile radius around the area where most of us live, we would find a wide variety of religious houses of worship, Protestant churches of different denominations, non-denominational churches, Unitarian Mormon churches, kingdom halls of Jehovah's Witnesses, synagogues, mosques, Hindu temples, Buddhist meditation centers. We also have New Age spiritual centers, psychics and astrological societies all around the area of Princeton. Among the local colleges and universities, there is even more diversity concentrated in a small area. Because in the same department, you can have gifted scholars who are humanist thinkers, committed Christians, Zen Buddhists, ex-Christians, and atheists, all teaching the same subjects. Much like Athens, our area is marked by vast cultural and religious diversity. And given all the choices around us, how would a spiritually seeking person even know where to begin? Specifically, given the steady rollout of bad press about the church and frequent reports of people leaving the church, why would a person give Christianity, especially evangelical forms of Christianity, the time of day? And there's an added layer to this. On top of being in a pluralistic society and the frequent reports of failures and departures of the church, the church in the U.S. faces a unique historical challenge that Paul and the apostles never faced. Here's what I mean. In verse 19, the Athenians accused Paul of spreading new teaching in their midst. As far as we know, this was the first time the gospel of Jesus was preached in the intellectually elite and the prosperous city of Athens. And at that time, Christianity was the latest new idea to hit the market. And at least for a bit, there was high consumer interest. But for many people around us, Christianity isn't anything new. It's an outdated, failed device. At its worst, it causes harm to people. It should come with a warning label. Or at its best, it is totally irrelevant to the needs of modern society. Either way, people say, Christianity should be adapted to fit the current needs of consumers or it, shall be, or it should be shelved in the back stock room not to be brought to market again. So Paul didn't face the baggage of living in a post-Christian culture like we do now. But what we're going to see this morning is that no matter what age we live in, creation can't help but testify 
that God is our creator and that we need a redeemer. That no matter which way people turn from God, whether it's in a pre-Christian or post-Christian culture, God remains discoverable to them because humans reflect God's image and they are the intended recipients of His redemptive love. So far from Paul's missionary journeys, we see that the gospel will be resistant by fallen structures and peoples. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were in prison for, his, for evangelism. In Thessalonica, the people rioted in response to Paul's preaching. In Berea, the people pushed Paul out of town for his Bible study methods of pointing people to Jesus. So, in one sense, the gospel will meet resistance wherever it travels, but it, is all, but it will also find a home in every place because it speaks of the one true creator and redeemer all people were made to know. New Testament scholar James Dunn puts it this way, this creator God has not created a hunger for God within humankind only to leave it unsatisfied. So before we look at Paul's speech in detail, we want to see how he ended up in front of the Areopagus Council. We want to look first at the circumstances and then we will look at the contents of his speech together. Look with me at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The crowds were after Paul and Berea, so, Paul, uh, sorry, so Silas and Timothy send Paul down to Athens, maybe for a short cruise vacation, but definitely to keep Paul away from the crowds. And as Paul approached the harbor in Athens, his eyes would have panned across the horizon only to see all kinds of temples dedicated to the gods. One author at the time remarked this way about Athens, Athens was so enamored with gods that you were more likely to trip on a god than a human being. And among the most prominent temples was the famous Parthenon, dedicated to Athena the goddess who was responsible for handicraft, warfare, and wisdom. But Paul did not see any wisdom in any of it. He was provoked to anger by what he saw. Now, when we hear that Paul is provoked, we might be tempted to think that he was angry like a cable news pundit, filled with rage to captivate the audience. But it was more like the experience, the, the experience of anger we have when someone we love keeps hurting themselves. It wasn't anger at the Athenians. It was anger for them. It was like the anger God displayed in the Old Testament when the Israelites, his children, gave themselves to idols again and again, these idols made same-day promises of health, good crops, and protection and war, but they never delivered. They only oppressed. And the Athenians were seduced by the same lies as God's people were long ago. Yes, Paul was angry, but like God, his anger was provoked by love. And this anger that was provoked by love put Paul into action. In verse 17, it says this, So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Paul isn't very good at this vacation thing. You see, he immediately jumps to his feet and he presses for the Athenians. Now, I want to make two observations about what we see Paul do here that I think says a lot about him, but also speaks volumes to us in our current situation. First, notice that Paul goes out to the synagogue. Paul shares the gospel with the Jewish people who knew the Scriptures. What they believed about God in the Scriptures prepared them for the news about Jesus Christ. The people Paul encountered in the synagogue are like many people in our culture today. And here's what I mean. Lots of people who end up converting to Christianity in the United States grew up in homes and settings where they had some exposure to the faith. They might have gone to church here and there, maybe attended a catechism class, maybe they even read the Bible from time to time. Then someone comes along and explains to them what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And then they say, now I really know what it means to know Jesus personally. It's a movement from being Christian in name only to dedicated discipleship. The cultural soil, in one sense, is already fertile to plant and grow gospel seed. This was the terrain that Paul was dealing with when he went to the synagogues. And it's similar to the experience that many people who express faith in Christ also have in our Western culture. But then notice, here's the second observation from here. Paul jumps over from the synagogue to the marketplace. Now, that doesn't sound very astounding to us. Maybe the synagogue was right across the street from the marketplace. But when Paul did that, he brought the gospel into a new conceptual world. You see, the Jews believed in one God, but the Gentiles believed in many gods. The Jews revered the Scriptures and waited for the Messiah. The Gentiles maybe had no idea about the Scriptures, and they also didn't believe in a grand story where they would be waiting for the Messiah to play a central role. What a contrast between these two groups that Paul was speaking to, and yet he goes to both of them. He goes both to the synagogue and to the marketplace because the good news of the gospel is for every place. Now, about this marketplace in Athens, we have to observe a couple things. First of all, we must see that it was the place where teachers would sell their ideas, so to speak. You know, just like in our culture, we go to shelves and take products, uh, products off the shelves that are new and exciting, these people would gather in the marketplace and collect as many new ideas as possible. It was like an outdoor university market. In verse 18, Luke tells us the two groups of people that Paul encounters there, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These two schools had dominant market, sh- market share in Paul's day. In short, the Epicureans believed that there were many gods, but they lived in eternal bliss, totally untouched and uncaring for the affairs of people on earth. The gods didn't need to be worshipped, and they certainly didn't need to be feared. They were totally uninvolved. So instead, people should pursue what feels good in life because life ultimately is up to chance, so make of it what you will. In many ways, 
it's not a bad summary of how many people still think and live today. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, they believe that people should conform their lives to the principle of reason. They believed everything was subject to the laws of nature. Outcomes were fixed in life. To have a happy life, people should accept their circumstances, have that Stoic-like attitude, because what will be will be. It was a life that was devoid of hope. In many ways, it was the original resignation. So, on the surface, these two schools of philosophy don't have much in common. One is about chance, and the other is about fate. But they actually have this critical piece in common. They are both self-focused, and they have nothing to do with a God-centered view of reality. If life is up to chance, why not just focus on yourself? And if life is predetermined for good or ill, all you can do is focus on yourself. Maybe, these, uh, maybe this is why these two schools had nothing in common, and yet they found a common adversary in Paul, because he preached a God-centered view of reality. Look at their response to him in verse 18. They mock him. They call him a babbler. That is, he's like a greenish teacher who picks up bits of knowledge here and there and cobbles them together, but he really doesn't have much understanding of anything at all. Then in verse 19, we discover that they actually, they don't understand him at all, not because of his accent from Tarshish, but because he speaks of Jesus and the resurrection. When the gospel hits the marketplace in Athens, it's mocked, it's misunderstood, and it's misrepresented. Now, maybe you've experienced similar things in your workplace or school, or maybe you've seen this in a recent show that you've watched, or maybe you've seen it in the news in the past couple days. It seems that when the, when the gospel goes public, all kinds of negative things result. But notice that in the face of mocking and misunderstanding, Paul does not give up on the power of the gospel, and neither should we, because he's brought before the Areopagus, that is, this council of elites who would evaluate uh, messages that were brought into the marketplace, and rather than being despairing or discouraged, Paul takes the opportunity to declare three timeless truths of gospel witness. And that's what I want to spend the remainder of our time on this morning is three timeless truths from Paul's sermon there. In verses 22 and 23, he starts his sermon in this way. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Rather than condemn his audience, he actually commends them. He doesn't criticize them to start, but he finds a way to connect to them. That's the first timeless truth of gospel witness. You see, in the same way that when a person would start a speech, 
they would thank the host for the invitation. Paul does a similar thing here, but he does so by acknowledging the Athenians' religiosity, and that's something that really matters to them. And it also matters to Paul, because to be religious or to be spiritual is at the heart of what it means to be made in God's image. You see, when we drive around and we see all kinds of places of worship, it reminds us that no matter how elite or how intellectual or how affluent people are, belief in the spiritual is implanted in us by God. Even if we encounter people who say, I believe in the progress of science and I don't believe in God, in a conversation with them, we'll often discover they have a lot of faith to what extent the scientific method can explain the universe or solve our problems. And here's just one example. Does survival of the fittest really best explain what the nature of love is or why people sacrifice themselves for the benefit of others, to save others. To believe that science one day will provide the best explanation of these things is to have blind faith in it now. So you see, whether it's traditional religious settings, the universe, or just a vague notion of God or science, human beings in their very nature are worshipers. They are seekers of the divine because they are stamped with the very image of God. No matter where we find people, the seed for the knowledge of God is already present there. Now notice that Paul takes an additional step in connecting to his audience. In verse 28, you'll notice in quotes in our Bibles that he quotes from their philosophers and poets. He says, he quotes them, in, in him we live and move and have our being. Then he quotes the poet who says, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, why does Paul make a connection to them in this way? Because to start, he must find a way to connect the gospel through their shared spiritual beliefs and values. It wouldn't have done Paul any good to reason with them from the scriptures. Instead, he speaks to them through the authors that they esteemed. Psalm 19 tells us that all of creation testifies to the existence and majesty of God. So it shouldn't surprise us that the people around us who are non-biblical thinkers make discoveries and observations all the time that reflect the character and nature of God. Unfortunately, in our day, Christians sometimes only know enough about other political religious and philosophical viewpoints just to condemn them, not to give credit where credit is due. But that's not what Paul does. He knew that their thinkers he knew their thinkers well enough to connect to their to connect to them. And he even quotes them. Now certainly all of us who are called to speak or write and teach as part of our calling can learn from Paul here on how to communicate to non-believers. But actually, this applies to all of us, regardless of our callings. When we meet new people, whether at a camp this summer or spend time with colleagues at work, we must take time to listen to them, to understand what makes them tick as people, to affirm 
where what they value reflects the character and nature of God. We are to listen for when their religiosity creeps out. Because remember, as Paul says in our passage, he's not as far as we might think. Some years ago, when I was sitting down by a creek and having my morning coffee, a man and his son were hiking by, and I struck up a conversation with him, only to discover that he took my picture some years ago uh, for our company photos. He was a top photographer in his field. He was known as the best of the best in our area. And long story short, after pursuing this wonderful uh, photography career, he came to the realization that it was no longer worthwhile to chase success. He said that one day he woke up with a sense that he was deeply loved, and he had no idea where that idea came from. And as I listened to him, I took the opportunity to explain, as I was able to, about the God who created us for His love, how sin estranges us from God's love, and how Jesus Christ came to do something about it. Well, there was no baptism in the creek that day. (laughs) He was polite, but he moved on. He didn't accept the gospel, but at the same time, he discovered the gospel connected to something that was deeply important to him, deeply central to who God made him to be. Well, after Paul makes the connection, he presents a challenge to his hearers. That's the second timeless truth of gospel witness. He says in verse 24, yes, you are quite religious. So religious, in fact, you have these altars all around that say to the unknown God. In his first point, he commends them for what they know. Now, in his second point, he challenges them for what they don't know. On the one hand, he proclaims God's transcendence to them. He starts where the Bible begins. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands. If the one God made all things, then life is not subject to blind chance or fate. All things are directed by His plan. Now, interestingly, these Athenians are guilty of the same sin against God that the Jewish leaders were guilty of in Acts chapter 7. That's where Stephen the deacon criticizes the Jewish leaders for restricting God's presence to the temple. And Paul takes a point from Stephen's sermon there. He says, you can't cage in the Almighty Creator in your temple because He doesn't do your bidding. He is the God over all things. And then he says this, everything that has breath, including this one you are about to take, comes from him. In other words, God doesn't do your bidding, you do God's bidding. It's the other way around. Now, while we may not limit God's power and presence now to particular buildings, God's words still challenge us. The Athenians worshipped at the temples to see what their gods can do for them. And because of the power of advertisement in our culture, we are often guilty of committing the same sin. We often make our gospel presentations so very self-focused. Listen to how one author put it in Christianity Today some years back. 
He says this, the minute we start advertising faith in terms of benefits, we're just exasperating the self-problem. With Christ, you're better, stronger, more likable. You may even get to enjoy some ecstasy, but it's just more self. Instead, we want to get people bored with themselves so that they can start looking to Jesus. In fact, that's Paul's very next challenge to the Athenians. He says that all people in every time and in every place were created so that they would seek not themselves but after God. Without difficulty, people know that God exists. Paul says in Romans 1.20, ever since the creation of the world, His invisible nature has been pre- clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So from the beauty of the sunset to our innate sense of right and wrong, both the outer and inner world let us know that there is a God. He doesn't play hide and seek. The knowledge that exists, that God exists, is literally everywhere that we look. Yes, we have an innate sense that there is a God, but rather than seeking after the true God, in our sinful nature, we end up creating a God after our own imagination. Many people believe that if there is a God, He's too distant to care about our lives. Other people think that He's too loving to find any fault with us. And a good number of people think that God remains unknown. He's a big question mark hanging over the universe. Against all this kind of idolatrous thinking, Paul challenges. But he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't just simply condemn what they believe and move on. No, instead he issues a call to them. And that's the third timeless truth of gospel witness. He says this in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Verse 31, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all people, raising Him from the dead. For years, God has patiently waited for those who bear His image to find their meaning in Him. And by sending Jesus into the world, the true knowledge of God has been restored. God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And God calls all people everywhere to turn away from the gods who overpromise and never deliver and instead trust in the one true and living God found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's day, the gospel was calling the Gentiles to leave the altars dedicated to Zeus, Athena, and Hermes. But in our day, the gospel calls us to abandon the pursuit of power, endless entertainment, and the self-satisfied life. And instead, we are to put our trust in the one who will one day judge the world in righteousness, Jesus Christ. And how do we know that this is the victorious life? How do we know that Jesus is the conqueror of all other gods? Because God raised Him from the dead. And this is the one that Paul calls the Athenians to believe in. But when they hear about the resurrection, 
They have a trigger reaction, and they pull the plug on Paul. Some mock the idea like they did in the marketplace, and others wanted more and more distance from him. But Paul said, there is no time to wait. The time of ignorance is gone. Today is the day of salvation. He was calling them to a new way of life here and now. Interestingly, one of the founders of the Areopagus said this, when a man dies, the earth drinks up his blood. There is no resurrection. So no wonder why so many Athenians didn't accept what Paul said. But not all of them had that same reaction. Verse 34 tells us that some men joined and believed, and we even know the names of a couple, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others as well. These elites spent their lives pursuing gods, hoping to discover the truth. So many altars, so many temples, so many different schools of thoughts. And for the first time when they hear Paul preach, they realize that the one God who made it all came down from heaven for their salvation. They found in Jesus what the created world was always pointing them to. And these elite thinkers were just the very first to believe in Jesus. Because for over 2,000 years, people all over the world, including well-accomplished and educated scientists, philosophers, psychologists, archaeologists, have come to believe the same teaching that Paul preaches here about the resurrection of Jesus. And because the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who testifies to us in creation, we have every reason to hope that no matter how foreign and strange the Christian faith may sound to people, we know that God's Word will continue to bear fruit in the hearts of people. Because God is our common creator. So we can make connections to those who don't believe, to our neighbors who don't understand the gospel. And we can even affirm truth because the truth that they've arrived to comes from our Creator God. We can also testify and speak truth to our neighbors because we know the character of God as He has told us in the Scriptures. And lastly, we can even call our neighbors to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, to believe the same gospel that we ourselves have come to know. These are three timeless truths of gospel witness and given our culture, we may not be able to do all three with people all at once. But over time, because gospel work is like farming, we will see fruit. But it takes persistence, patience, and trust. And by God's grace, it will continue to bear fruit, just like it did for Paul and the Athenians on that day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have not left us without witness, but through the creation of this world, you've shown us that you are the true God and that we can know you truly through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to share this good news with those that we see, to know that in every time and every place, your gospel is both relevant and powerful. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.